Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Clever listeners. We're closing out 2019 by rebroadcasting some of our favorite episodes of the year. Before we get on with the show, we want to take a moment to thank you. Thank you for listening and for sharing Clever with your friends. It makes us so happy when we see Clever come up in your Instagram stories or you tweet about how you resonated with our interviews. Your support is what keeps this show going. And if you're in the giving spirit, here are a few ways you can help. If you enjoy Clever, please tell your friends about us. Spread the word. Or give us a five-star rating or write a review on iTunes. Or you can mention Clever on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and tag us at Clever Podcast. In order to bring you this show for free, Clever is reliant on the financial support of sponsors and patrons. So please visit our sponsors links and support us by supporting them. Maybe you know a company who would benefit from advertising with us. Send any potential sponsors our way. And if you're feeling it, you can personally make a donation at cleverpodcast.com. Again, thank you. We love you and appreciate you. And we want you to have a super happy and healthy holiday season. We have exciting things planned for 2020. So stick with us. Now, here's the show. have these very distinct steps that I walk through creatively that allow me to like feel like I've accomplished something and get to move on to the next stage because I think if the only accomplishment is final art is done you just feel like you're in a slog for half of it you need to have these moments that's like ta-da like you've leveled up creatively on that project hi everyone I'm Jamie Derringer I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever and today I'm talking to lettering artist and illustrator Jessica Hish. She's already made her way into your heart with her viral Should I Work for Free flowchart and her daily drop cap project where she created a new capital letter every day and offered it up for free use. Now she's recently released a children's book, Tomorrow I'll Be Brave, of inspiring bedtime stories and playful illustrations. She's a pretty big deal in the world of graphic. Whether you're aware or not, you've seen her work in places like Wes Anderson's film, Moonrise Kingdom, popular brand logos, books, and advertising campaigns. This interview was recorded live at Adobe Mac, Adobe's annual creativity conference in the Airstream Podcast Lounge. I couldn't be there, so it's just Amy and Jessica, so let's listen along together. (laughs) 
So my name is Jessica Hish. I live in the Bay Area, in Oakland specifically, and work in San Francisco. I'm a lettering artist, author, and illustrator. And there's so many things that I love about what I do. I love being able to, you know, collaborate with other people. I love being able to draw all day, which is just has always been my dream since I was a little kid. And mostly I just really like making art that makes people happy and sort of like sparks joy in some way. That's a really pure, benevolent motivation. <laughs> I love well, it. Well, you have to you have to really understand too that so much work that, you know, commercial lettering artists and illustrators do ultimately helps sell products, but uh, you can get kind of down on yourself if you focus on that side of it and not the side of people ultimately seeing that art and them being this was beautiful. This made me feel like I could make things. You yeah. Know? And so you get that even for the really commercial stuff, too. It's the extension of the energy you put out in the world, I yeah, think. Yeah, totally, like, totally. Yeah. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the beginning. Young Jessica, can you illustrate what your childhood was like for us? Like sure. your family dynamic, your hometown, what you were fascinated by as a child? Yeah, I grew up in northeast Pennsylvania in a town, uh, the city of Hazleton, but specifically in Sugarloaf, which is, there's a valley in Hazleton, and, and it's one of the little townships down there. Uh, it was very rural. I lived in sort of like a neighborhood that had maybe 13 houses, but the closest other neighborhood was, you know, two or three miles away. And so when I was a kid, like when I was 10, I used to, you know, ride my bike to the community pool that was four miles away on a country road, you know. (laughs) And so I had a very different childhood than the one that my kids are being raised in, in like semi-urban Oakland, California. But uh, it was really lovely. You know, it was all the things that you sort of think about as an ideal, like, more rural childhood, corn mazes, you know, building yeah. forts in the woods and things like that. You know, things that Catch are like fireflies, mildly dangerous, <laughs> <Yeah>. but you know, <laughs> like still good. Uh, you know, riding like scooters down too dangerous curves and that sort of thing. Yeah. It was great. And I, I've always been, um, I was a really, I can't say I've always been. When I was a kid, I was painfully shy. I was a really, really shy kid. That is a surprise based on gregarious Jessica who's in front of me. I think it's, I was always gregarious with people that I trusted, but I felt, I I still have this, this like horrible like people pleaser gene. Mm. And I just like couldn't, I, it was like insurmountable as a kid (laughs) but as a kid I just constantly was so worried about like making people upset or angry or that I was going to do something wrong and I had this like really horrible perfectionism that was just inborn it was not a outside parents did not make me have it it was totally my own and it's been like a lifetime journey overcoming it um but because of that I feel like I ended up drawing a lot and uh I loved drawing I've always loved drawing and it was one of these activities that allowed me to like have a thing that made me special that people awarded me for constantly like you know people would be like you're so good this draw this for me whatever yeah and it was just it felt really good at an early age to have a thing that like everyone is just encouraging you to do and I think like over the course of my whole career I've sort of struggled with Am I motivated because I like people telling me that I'm good at something or am I motivated because I love it? And it's always sort of a mix of the things, but it's, yeah, it started at a very young age. Yeah, well, it's, uh, sometimes it's hard when you get so much positive reinforcement. Like, do you love it because you're good at it or do you love it because it makes you feel special? But the thing is, it's, 
both. It's both. You know, there's always the spark that started it. And then the external validation is really lovely. And I don't think that you can like discount it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk about my kids book, I'm sure in a little bit. But like that I've been just like running on my own personal hype fumes for so long because publishing timelines are so intense. Mm -hmm. And it's I've just been like waiting for that external validation. (laughs) Because it's been all internal. I'm like, I can't function on only internal validation. (laughs) That is so refreshing to hear. It's so honest and so true. So what was like teenager years like then if you had perfectionism that you were struggling with? I know sometimes hormones and and people pleasing don't, they clash. How did that go down? Teenage years were rough for a bunch of reasons. One, I was like a hormonal mess and I have been feeling the reverberations of now adult hormonal mess through like having kids and things like that, which is giving me like a look into the future Mm -hmm. of like menopausal hormonal mess. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh man, I need to make sure I have like all of my self care (laughs) stuff just really lined up in order to make this happen. But as a, you know, my, my parents separated when I was young, when I was 14. Oh. And it was like a very, very rough time. You know, they had a a, a really, really intense divorce that lasted for years. Like oh they didn't goodness. actually divorce until I was 18. So from 14 to 18, it was very antagonistic and crazy. Um, and but the one thing that I can say from it is I think it was extremely formative in a really positive way for me. So like as much as it was really hard to get through at the time, it made me so independent in a way that I don't know if I would have gotten to had I been in, you know, had my family stayed together. How so? Like I... I feel like I was so like that that people pleaser thing was so important and I was just so terrified. I'm, I've always been a very risk averse person. Mm-hmm. And I think that I just would have stayed in this like very comfortable protective shell. I wouldn't have felt this need to like go out and do everything on my own and prove myself and like really assert an insane independence from everyone in my family. You know, just sort of wanting to make sure that I wasn't reliant on anyone, wanting to make sure that, you know, my my mom uh, stopped working when she had kids. And I just saw like what was happening to her through divorce, where, you know, she lost a lot of her sense of purpose as we became teenagers and also had to restart her whole career having not, you know, worked for that many years. And it, it was all these things that sort of taught me like, you need to be in charge of your own future you like as much as it's important to find people that you trust and depend on them and that I'm in a you know awesome marriage and I really feel like you know we're forever partners or whatever but I still know that I have to be my own human like I have to be a separate person of my relationship and I think that's something that I learned really early on and it changed how I behaved and how I interacted with the world but for the better it made me more trusting of friends it made me make more relationships you know outside of myself it made me more extroverted it made me focus on work because work gave me such fulfillment that was completely outside of any sort of personal relationship you sound like a smart kid who was (laughs) older than your age were you aware that you were growing in this way when you were 14 to 18? I definitely wasn't. You know, when I look back... It's a hindsight thing. It's a hindsight thing. I mean, I look back at it and it was like, you know, crippling at the time to feel like I 
I, I, you know, a lot of it was self-imposed. I like just really wanted to make sure everything that I was doing was something that I had chosen to do and something that I was responsible for and something that I didn't have another person like pushing me or influencing me to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so it was like self-inflicted uh, at the time. But in retrospect, it is very clear that like the reason why I became the person that I am is because I got shaped into being this person through that experience. And were you really hard on yourself? I was really hard on myself, too, but too but, hard or um I think I I think too hard. I was definitely a kid that would you know, just abandon sketchbooks because they ruined a page with one bad drawing, or you know, like. My I transferred high schools when I was in 10th grade. I went from the Catholic school to the public school. And the public school was on a very different grading scale. So they did like the the grades where you can have like a 4.8 GPA because there are like the extra bonus classes. And my previous school didn't have that. Okay. So in a class of like 800 something kids, I was not in the top 20% because like I couldn't be and I wasn't on the AP track. I wasn't in gifted, you know, because that wasn't a part of Catholic school. And so all of a sudden my last two years of school, I basically like I gave up on a lot of academics. You know, I like kind of you got demoted unfairly and you felt like you'd been robbed. Well, it's like not that I got demoted because I definitely was like in like middle school and early high school, like only putting in as much energy as I needed to, you know, (laughs) to all classes that weren't art, you know. And so that was one of the the reason why I transferred to public school is because my Catholic school would not let me keep taking art classes. So I knew that I was like, this is the only thing I've ever really loved. And I know this is what I want to do. And so they kept saying, no, you need to double up on maths this semester, la la la. Like it's not uh, important that you focus on art. You need to really take these other extra maths. And I was like, no, you guys aren't listening to me. This is like the only thing I want to do. I I need to go to an environment that allows me to do it. Yeah. So then when I transferred schools, I ended up taking like seven studio art classes in two years, like at this uh, public high school. And my art teachers were so amazing and so great. And it's like, it happened right at all of this like crazy time personally and it made me just fall so much more in love with the work that I was doing because it was this like coping mechanism to get through it but it also was just like the only thing that I knew for sure was like going to be the thing that I did with my life you know yeah you know art art's incredibly therapeutic but if it's also if it's your mode of expression yeah you are so Sweet. I, I'm like super like a crazy empath and I'm yes. also like always on low sleep. So I cry in interviews. <laughs> not okay. No, no, no. It's <laughs> okay. Often. I'll probably cry before this is over too. But you're you're in a totally safe place with me <laughs> because I am such a crier. Um, is it because you're thinking about that rough time in your life when art saved you? Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I don't get to talk about it a lot too mm-hmm. because I, I don't want to hurt anyone in my family and stuff by actually talking about it because we all have like really good relationships now and, it, and it's been a struggle to sort of get back to that place. Sure. And I don't hold them accountable for everything that happened in that time because it was like crazy they for everyone. They were struggling too. They were struggling too, you know, and it's just like you don't – it's hard to express the impact that it had on me, but I'm also so grateful for the impact that it had on me because I don't – I think I would have still been, you know, like either living in my small town or living in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia's a great town and everything. I would I would live there in a heartbeat, but I just don't think I would have achieved a lot of the things that I achieved had I not been sort of pushed into this, like, independent, more adult role early on in life, you know? 
I just learned, this is going to be weird and off topic, but I just learned about this um, type of flower called a fire follower flower. Do uh-huh. you know this type no, of flower? No, no, I've never heard of this. I'm going to get this wrong, but it's like a, it's something that is dormant down deep in the, in the soil. And something about the extreme heat of a fire allows the seed to sort of crack open and the flower to come up and bloom. So it only yeah. blooms after a fire. But it sounds like um, you had the experience of taking something that was in- incredibly uh, raw mm-hmm. and turning it into something. Your way through it was through art yeah. and and also through independence, and you turned it into something that made you stronger. It was also because, like, both of my parents um, and my stepmom were always very encouraging of my art stuff. So even through all of this, through, like, what we were all going through, like, they still, like, were like, yes, like, you're great, push it, push it. And, like, mm-hmm. just having that support, even though it was in this, like, crazy time, uh, like, strengthened it, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And it's weird, you know, I, the talk that I, I talked yesterday at the conference, and uh, I started the talk with all these personality tests and stuff that everyone does to sort of figure themselves out. <laughs> and when I was a kid, you know, learning that I was an Aries, I like did not identify as an Aries at all. And so your story about the fire flower, <laughs> I was like, oh, I've just like been a secret Aries, and I just <laughs> needed to be pressure cooked into being a real Aries. <laughs> Maybe that's true. But yeah, I think I, you know, I really think I, I needed it. I like I needed a push because I don't, I don't push myself as hard as I could. You know, like there are ways that I push myself in terms of like the amount of hours that I put in or like you know the tenacity for a certain thing. But in terms of like far-reaching goals, I'm not that good at pushing myself towards far-reaching goals. I tend to pick things that feel safe and feel achievable and feel close. And so it felt like that moment really pushed me in a trajectory that it would have taken me a very long time to get there on my own. That is a really healthy way to look back at a at a rough time in your life. And also, it does sound like that you've been able to harness that momentum in a way like recognize its benefit and and harness it and 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 too like one of the things that I had struggled with earlier in my career is really feeling like art was just like a coping mechanism for not wanting to deal with other like emotions or hormones or whatever yeah and then having this sort of like I don't know how I feel about that relationship with my art where I was like, am I burying myself in work in order to avoid dealing with these other things? Or am I getting fulfillment from my work and that's why I'm over here? Or and am I working it out through creativity? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it and it's be really, all of that. It's all of the things. And I think that we get ourselves into trouble when we like keep wanting to label make everything and like d- be definitive about the things that we're doing because n- nothing is ever that black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, like me wanting to work more hours is both because I don't feel like like work like dealing with a harder thing that I'm <laughs> doing, but also because the work itself is very meditative and it's a way for me to like take my anxiety and stress levels down. And like it's always more than one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are when we get really hard on ourselves is when we like try to make a thing that we love into a thing that is damaging to us, you know. <laughs> that is wise. Very wise. 
Um, you've said that you always knew you were going to be an artist or that you wanted to do art. So art school, was that a given? Did it you- was a given. Like yeah. I, I knew, well, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I was going to be in terms of being an artist. And mm-hmm. I was so naive when I applied to and went to art school. Like I didn't have any money saved for college. So I just went to like whoever would take me, which happened to be an amazing school because they recruited from my high school a lot because my art teacher was so awesome. And that was Tyler School, that was of, Tyler art. school of Art, which was in state for me being okay. in Pennsylvania. And so my tuition for my first year of school was like $9,000. Wow. And so it was like so easy to take out loans. And for me to I worked as an RA when I was in school. When I graduated, I had like $20,000 in debt, and which is like nothing compared right. to what a lot of people have. And you know, just paying for everything myself. And I feel very proud of it. And I felt like it it really felt like after high school, like everything that I had done after that was like a thing that I could personally own. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, art school was just always, it seemed like to me, like the only option. And in a way, like, I am a little mad at myself for not letting myself pursue other things when I was younger, because I've always been interested in writing. I've always been interested in the sciences and things like that. But I was very one track mind. I'm a person that is very uncomfortable with ambiguity. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I need to, like, know Wait, that... you were just talking about the ambiguity of, am I a workaholic? <laughs> I know, I know, but this is, it's, it's yeah. like, I, I have to ask myself those questions and think about it a lot, but, yeah. like, when we first moved to San Francisco, for instance, like, I kept being like, I don't know if I want to live here forever, you know, and forever is, like, this word that pops up for me again and again, where it feels like every decision that I make is, like, the decision that is forever. Right. And it's taken me, like, 10 years to like really hammer into my head that like whatever you choose to do can be undone you know if it's not right or you can move on like if you live somewhere that's there's not always like, another chapter there's always another chapter and it's really hard to know that especially when you're young right because like you're just looking into the future and being like oh well i'm gonna graduate college i'm gonna move to a place and i'm gonna live there forever or i'm gonna that's where i'm gonna like make my family because a lot of us have families that did that mm-hmm. you know they you know your parents graduated from college they probably got married in college or whatever and then they moved to a town and they had kids not long after and they probably still live there and so the only examples that you see are people that make those forever choices much earlier in their lives and I didn't have a lot of samples of people that were just sort of willy-nilly moving around (laughs) you know and so I definitely struggle with the eccentric vagabond aunt that would come through no (laughs) no I mean my mom's whole family like still lives in New Jersey like not far from where she grew up you know it's uh my dad's family doesn't live far from there too so it's you know, I don't have, there's not a lot of vagrants. In it. <laughs> not like vagrants, just itinerant. Yeah. So, okay, so art school was a given. It sounds like you had a really positive art school experience. And I had then, a really positive experience. That makes me very happy. And then you're, you've got this independence. You go out into the professional world. Were you sort of confident and brash and full of like vim and vigor or were you awkward and wobbly or I like? I was totally confident and brash and I can very much like blame slash thank you that on <laughs> like just being 22. Yeah. Like I'm like constantly like, oh the my shit God. I said when I was 22. I really need to just channel my 22 year old <laughs> self just over and over again. That was just like, oh, no consequences. I am not aware of 
my actions in the world, you know? <laughs> because once you've been working for a while, you you see things echo for a long time. You know, like, you know, after school, I, I worked for companies and I was doing a lot of, uh, you know, freelance work and things like that. But I also went through this period in like 2010, 11, when I launched like a million websites that were all side projects. Like I, I probably did like, tw- like, seven to 10 projects in like one or two years. And I was just really excited about learning how to like code and like put yeah. things together. And all my friends would make jokes about like, oh, Jessica's like her own startup factory. <laughs> la, la, la. But then realizing like a couple years later, oh, these are all things that I have to like still maintain. And I have to like be a customer service person for this. And I have to go and update things and whatever. And so I started to see the like actual responsibility that comes with making things. Well, the consequences of said choices. Which, (laughs) thank God I did not have those when I was 22. You know, like, so I'm constantly trying to weigh, like, this more, much more adult understanding of consequences and responsibility and follow through and, you know, what it means to put something into the world and have to talk about it for 10 years and stuff like that. Right. And, but then also wanting to make things like in a vacuum of no responsibility because then you can be more free. free. Yeah. yeah. And, and let yourself do things that don't have to be amazing or don't have to be a talking point forever or don't have to be. You don't have to justify yeah. them to the world. You yeah. can just, just play around and figure see if you can pull something out of you that you've never pulled out before yeah and it's still hard for me like i have i have so many of these websites that i still like maintain that i just need to just like shut down and i have a hard time doing it because it's like it was important to me at one point and i just i'm not i'm almost at the point where i can just be like here internet someone else take this over (laughs) But, but yeah i don't know if we've quite figured out how to archive yeah those things you know like maybe it can stay a snapshot of where it is now yeah. without you having to keep growing it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Know. I've snapshotted a few of them okay. as much as I can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were confident and brash. It made me completely insufferable to people that had more than five years experience. Than me. <laughs> so like I had a, a few close friends that were constantly like helping be my brashness advisors and when i and this was you know sort of i didn't i didn't ask for their advising on this but they would offer me their advice but those are the best friends sometimes they really are they would the friend that tells you there's broccoli in your teeth for sure (laughs) yeah and so this was uh i joined twitter in 2007 or 8 something like that and so this is all very like early social media stuff you know Mm -hmm. like i had like a blogger website and tumblr and things like that and so I was all excited about this because I didn't really do live journal and stuff when I was in late high school. Like, I wasn't okay. part of it, but I was in, like, MIRC chat rooms and things like that. And I've just loved sharing things online and feeling this, like, community and feeling access to other people that I wouldn't have had access to. Coming from, like, a small town especially, like... Sure, it I'm was, sure it felt like a portal to, oh like, my God. the it, world. It was so freeing to know that, like, the cheerleaders were not going to be, like, the ultimate pinnacle of social <laughs> success for, Thank like, God. ever. <laughs> And uh, just having access to that was amazing. And so I was like, I still am like extremely active in online communities. And I would have friends that would be like, hey, Jess, you need to tone it down a little bit. Like when you're like talking about how pumped you are about your projects, because it like this one was fine, but this one sounded a little braggy. And I'm like, you don't even know me. (laughs) But it was really, you know, in that way, like, again, the brashness really served me because and it still serves me, you know, like I get this. I'm my own best hype man. When I'm, like, pumped about something, 
I am just like, oh my God, people are going to effing love this. And I get so psyched even while I'm working. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading uh, uh, Stephen King's On Writing right now, and he talks about the ideal reader as being something that you write for. Like when you're writing fiction, you you imagine in your mind, like, who's your ideal reader? And you write for that person so that you can, like, ignore all the people that are not your ideal reader and just make that ideal reader happy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have that a lot in my work, where I'll be working and I, like, just can picture the people that I know will like a thing, and I get so excited about like showing this thing to them and so it's really easy for me to just push something into the world because I already feel like I've communicated with that audience even before they've seen it you know and so like I've never had a problem like getting excited and being brash and launching things and it's only like when I don't get that external validation (laughs) back that I'm just like oh no (laughs) well I mean I think that there is a fair amount of stoke that you, as a creative, you need to have because you are putting these ideas that are untested out into the world. And if you don't have stoke, like they're going to come out all flat. You're going to put it out there and say, do you like me? Is this okay? Yeah. And there's also, there's like weird crappy ways to think about it of like, in order to be successful, you have to project success or whatever, which is like what you would read in like a bad book about like social media or something yeah, like that. Yeah, or a medium post. Yeah, and it's very much, it's that's a very disingenuous way to think about it. It's more that like the more natural enthusiasm that you have for something, the more contagious that enthusiasm I will be. I totally agree. You and can be passionate about a font or anything and if you really are genuinely passionate that's infectious yeah because people are like i just like i need to understand why you're so psyched about this you know and then if they don't get the psychedness they'll they'll even be like i don't understand why this person's so excited about it but then someone else will see that person's post and be like because it's uh, (laughs) effing amazing you know (laughs) so of all your sort of professional accomplishments what experience has been the most fertilizing? And by fertilizing, I mean that it like really nourished the soil and supported amazing growth, but maybe didn't smell so good while it was happening. So I've had a couple of projects that were very, like, they are not like my biggest name projects. Like, you know, the ones that nourished my career and grew my career the most did not have a lot of stink around them. Like, I've just had, like, so much positive energy around a lot of the projects that I've done, which has been, like, so phenomenal. And, like, even my my personal projects, I feel like so much of the energy around them is always very positive, and I don't get a ton of negative backlash. But part of that is just because I do work that's, like, very safe, you know? (laughs) I don't do, like, very risky work all the time, and it's just the kind of work that appeals to me. And I think part of that is because, like, I want to make work that makes people happy i'm not a provocateur you know mm-hmm. like i people there are people that should do that work and that totally get off on that kind of work and it's just not what Great. stokes my flames right but i've had a few client projects that have have had painful moments that have really shaped how i work with people and so i worked oh, like on what i worked on a, a logo project uh, for an energy company in uh, New Zealand called Contact Energy. And it was they hired me right after um, I had done the logo work for MailChimp uh, in their previous iteration. And the MailChimp logo was very collaborative and loose. You know, it was just sort of one creative from their team had reached out to me and we sort of were sending sketches back and forth. And it was, there were no like 
rounds necessarily. <laughs> there were no PDF presentations or slide decks and all this kind of stuff. And I hadn't done a lot of logo work on my own just because I didn't want to do the brand extension work. Mm -hmm. So this idea of only being held accountable for a logo and not for the rest of the ancillary branding was very new to me as being a thing that I could do. I thought for sure that if I wanted to be a logo designer, I'd have to like do all the brochures and business cards and all that kind of stuff. And so when Contact had contacted me, uh, they wanted me to help them update their logo and they had this super tight deck put together that was using a typeface Bellow script as like placeholder. And based on just how much work they had done within this deck and how they told me this was the concept they had sold through to the client, because it was a design agency that I was working with, um, I was like, oh, clearly they want me to do something that's really similar to yeah. this script that they're using as placeholder in the thing that they sold through. Uh, but Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. 
The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. There must have been a miscommunication, and that is not what they wanted. And so I turned around like three pencil sketches, being like, hey, you know, like, here's just a little something for us to start a conversation, la la la. And they flipped out. They were just like, this is the least professional person we've ever worked with. They were expecting like a really huge brand deck from me. And because they were a branding studio that were then going to have to put my work into their deck to present to their client, I didn't assume that I had to put together like this huge like 50 page brand deck with all like final logo art and stuff in it. And it was very like I had like a <gasps> like you know chest collapse anxiety moment because your people pleaser the part my of people that part pleaser still went alive. totally crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then my artist rep was just like, "What do you want to do here?" And I was just like, "I think we can save it. I think I just have to apologize and be like, this has been a communication issue. And clearly now I know what their expectations are, and that I need to meet those expectations or exceed them. And so." I went back to them and I was just like, guys, I'm so sorry. I had this previous logo project that informed how I, you know, worked and it was very collaborative and loose. And I didn't realize that what you guys needed was like something that was very buttoned up because I assumed that mm-hmm. you'd be you'd be making the deck to show the client, not that you'd just be showing them my deck, you know, straight mm-hmm. off. And I was like, let me do another round. We'll totally start over. I'll do much broader exploration. We'll see lots of stuff. And they were like, okay, let's see how it goes. And then I did this like huge exploration and really fancified it and put it in like you know typed out all my like and here is this option like in the pdf (laughs) and you know and notes about what's to come and like thoughts about initial stuff you know just made it really tight Mm -hmm. and they were just blown away from just like the the arc of like here are rough pencil sketches too here's the tight deck and they were just like oh my god this is so much better this is exactly what we were expecting la 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 and so it was this huge victory but it was such a 
horrible, anxiety-inducing, crazy moment in the time. And I could have just been like, that sucks. I'm walking away. And the I'm so happy that they ended up liking the work because yeah. I think I would have been totally destroyed had they not. Yeah, it would have affected you in a different way, but you, yeah, cl- it you clawed made, it back. Yeah, yeah, it would have made me feel like whatever effort I put into a project wasn't worth it. And I know that we shouldn't take like a single data point to heart. It should be like multiple data points. But I feel like because this was my first experience with this, had they come back and go, no, nah, none of these are really doing it for us. It feels like you're still not, you're still phoning it in or whatever. I think I would have been just devastated. <laughs> you know, so it felt like this real turning point in my career to like be able to to win back a client that was basically trying to fire me. And then also it completely changed how I do all of my presentation decks for all clients now. Now, does that mean that you just make sure to figure out what the expectations are? Or does that mean that you do all these fancy decks every time? It means I do all the fancy decks every time for logo clients, even if they tell me they don't need them. Oh. So I think that like... Because you can't risk them being underwhelmed. Yeah. And also, you only have you only have one chance to make a good first impression, you know, <laughs> as they would tell you in, like, etiquette classes and things like that. And as much as you can tell a client, hey, don't read this deck until we're on the phone with each other, or don't look at the work until we're on the phone, they're going to open it and look at it, and mm-hmm. they're going to form a first impression before they have your words alongside it. That's so true. you really do have to just present the work along with what exactly what you want them to know about the work. Because no matter what, even if your phone call is you basically reading through your PDF, which I find those phone calls to be horrifying, <laughs> but they happen, mm-hmm. I think it helps so much for them if they get curious or if they have to pass it around to have your exact words accompanying yes. the art. Because you also can't trust that whoever you present to is going to be able to get buy-in from everybody else. They're not going to be able to represent yeah. your... And I, I found yeah. that I had another client project where that was the exact issue. Where, like, I and it happened very close to this contact thing, so I hadn't figured out my whole, like, let's show up at a house party in a tuxedo uh, situation. <laughs> but but the the problem with this other client was that they were an agency and they were presenting my work to another external client and they would come back with feedback from the client and I could just tell in the feedback that they had, I was like, you didn't say the things that I said to you in this presentation because they're asking the questions that were clarified in how I said it to you. Mm-hmm. And it, all of this sort of gelled together with me being like, I need to actually make my decks into like writing things out. It should be a presentation that I don't have to actually give on the phone. They should be able to just read it. And you shouldn't have to babysit it all the way through. Yeah, they, sh- they should be go. able to spread it like far and wide and everybody should be able to get exactly what I want them to get out of it. Well, that is an important lesson. And it sounds like you learned it the same way that you made yourself a better person from that divorce. (laughs) (laughs) You're an example, Jessica. I don't know about that. So (laughs) let's let's talk about Tomorrow I'll Be Brave, your new book, which just launched. Congratulations. It's very exciting. Today is my launch day, actually. It's crazy. So (laughs) cheers. Yeah, Yeah, cheers. (laughs) It's a children's book. It is a children's book. Tell me all about it and what compelled you to make this work. So first, I will preface it with I was terrified to make a children's book before I had children because I'm super risk averse and (laughs) also don't like making things that I have no knowledge about uh, and always stick very close to home with the projects that I do. But then once I had my daughter and was just sort of like inundated with the world of children's books by, you know, having this collection ourselves, like being shown books from other other families, I felt like I was starting to sort of 
gain a lot of knowledge about the space and about what was missing and about things that I wished that I could read to her. And um, I don't know if you saw if you've seen the uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary yet. I haven't seen it yet. Well, it's amazing. It, everybody should see it. It's like, like, honestly, medicine for the soul right now. But one of the things that Fred Rogers really believes is that like children are capable of, you know, a level of emotional depth that adults don't think they are. Oh, I know they are. I know, until I get interior again, because Mr. Rogers is amazing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But so um, I even, I took a children's book writing class really recently at UC Berkeley, just as like a, you know, a like, oh, I feel like I don't know anything about children's book writing, even though I already wrote and sold a book. Like, because <laughs> I was like, that was a fluke. Maybe I could just confirm that, that I did was, it right. That was a fluke. I need to make sure that if I do it again, I know what I'm doing, whatever. Uh-huh. And it was really interesting because the class was really fulfilling because all the students were like amazing and gave good feedback. And like the teacher ended up giving us a lot of good like information towards the end of the class. But, you know, in the beginning part, we had this board book assignment and he doesn't have children himself and doesn't write board books. He writes sort of like historical books for an older like grade school age. And so he kept pushing us to make these just like what uh, publishers call concept books, which is just like a book about shapes or a book about whatever. And I was like, my daughter and my son now are so beyond that. They, they, You can read them like a shapes book until they're like a year old and then they're just not interested anymore. They want narrative and they want like... They want to. I want personality, character, personality, texture, depth, humor. humor. Yeah, you know they're ready for it way earlier. Even a little tragedy. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. I mean, my daughter's like super obsessed with death, and I feel like I need to make like a children's book about death next, just to like serve her. But, Maybe you do. Yeah. I mean, we treat death so we're so avoidant. Yeah, yeah. And I think everyone, you know, tries to shield their kids from things, and especially from sort of like understanding adult experience i don't i don't think it's right to like introduce little kids to like what it is to be an adult like too early i'm very i admire friends that involve their little kids in like politics and things like that for us it's like not really for me uh mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know my daughter's so young and she doesn't really get a lot of doesn't understand everything yet she does understand things but i don't want her to know that like well, you don't Some want to... people are worse than others. <laughs> but, yeah, you, know? <laughs> you don't want it to go in and like take a left turn or get the wires yeah, crossed. Yeah, and... I think it's really easy to have wires crossed with like super adult concepts. But things like how to aspire to things, concepts that are around emotion and things like that, how to forgive yourself if you fail, like, you know, a That's lot of these... a big one. So that was like a huge inspiration for me for writing the book where I felt like as a working parent this like bedtime reading moment was like the only time with kids, you know, like you have your morning, but it's totally chaos. And you're like organizing meals and like just trying to get everything together, make sure people have clothes on and stuff like that. <laughs> and then when you come home from work and have dinner and get through that routine, the the finally the chill time is when you're just reading, you know, like you're sitting for 45 minutes or an hour and like just mm-hmm. reading to your kid. And it felt like this moment that was so special. That was really a great time to introduce something that was more complicated than, you know, like Pete the Cat or something like that. And uh, I wanted Because you can encourage the questions back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to make something that was... It was about self-reflection at a time of the day when self-reflection is important. And about thinking about tomorrow at a point in the day when, you know, you it's can get excited us. about the next day. Yeah. And that, like, you know, the end of the day is not sad. The end of the day is the beginning of a new day kind of thing. And then I found that, you know, through my own crazy perfectionism. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I will be brave tomorrow. 
But my own crazy perfectionism as a kid, which was not external, it was not my parents being like, like, you know, some people have parents that yell at them and make them get like crazy straight A's and don't think that an A minus is okay enough and whatever. I didn't have that. My parents were totally chill about it. I had it from within me. Mm -hmm. But I felt like this idea that the most important thing is just to try that it's not actually about like getting the good grade or actually achieving the thing that you set out to, but that like there's always value in trying. And it's such like a, a it's thing. It's about that, not limiting yourself. Totally, totally. And it's such a thing too that like, so now the whole way to make fun of millennials is through like avocado toast. I'm an, <laughs> yeah. I'm an old millennial, so okay. I'm like 84. Uh, so I still count as a millennial, even <laughs> though somehow I, I'm also the same generation as like 17 year olds, which is crazy to me. But when I was younger, the way that you would make fun of millennials is the participation trophy, right, right? right? So everybody was just like, oh my God, these millennials just need a trophy for everything they do. And I am like such a person that is like the only trophy that matters is the participation trophy. It's the only one that matters. If everyone only did activities that they thought they would win, no one would do anything ever. I know. Because like true. how many people can get an Olympic gold medal? How many people can win the spelling bee? One person. Does that mean that no one else should try because I'm they a can't spelling win? bee winner? <laughs> Go you. I was not. <laughs> I beat out everyone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I think it's important to have goals and to work towards them and to try to be as best as you can at them. But I think it's horrible to discount trying. Yes, and because trying, sometimes you fi- you figure out another skill that you have that you can apply somewhere else, or else you have fun, or you make a new friend, yeah. or you have make a memory that serves you well. Totally. And we were talking earlier about... You learn how to be a good loser. I mean, yeah, all of that's Totally, so all those things. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about like doing things that you're good at because of the external validation, or doing things that you're driven to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever talked to El Luna, but um, she has a book called The Crossroads of Should and Must. Oh. That's really really good. It's a really good read. And man, I'm just like totally waterworks right now. But it's all about pursuing things that you feel like you were put on this earth to do, not things that pe- that you feel you should do, which is all sort of an external like yes. things that the people put on us. It's all the construct. It's, and, all, the, yeah, the yeah, it's all the construct. And it's like, it's a thing that little kids struggle with. It's a kid thing that adults struggle with. It's a thing that, you know, people that have lived 70 years struggle with. It's like, am I doing this because there's something in me that's driving me to do it? Or am I doing it because I feel like other people are expecting me to do it? I mean, that was something I struggled with. Yeah, I, totally. I still am struggling with. Yeah, that's that's important. That's a children's book? Uh, it's not a children's book. Oh, but you could, I'm like, I think I could use that. You, no, it's, it's an adult's book, but you could read it to, you know, kids as young as, you know, 10 or 11. It okay. would be, it would totally be good for younger kids too. But yeah, and so like, the premise of the book was I wanted to make something encouraging, but not so encouraging that all of the, you know, freak out perfectionists got triggered and didn't know how to like, <laughs> didn't know how to deal with the fallout of not achieving things. So like the the book itself, like the whole thing is like, you know, very like beautiful and illustrative and lots of big lettering, but the last two spreads are like the most important spreads of the book. And it says like the words are Uh, Tomorrow I'll be all the things I tried to be today. And then it runs through all the words. And if I wasn't one of them, I know that it's okay. But tonight, (laughs) I'm very sleepy. So now it's time to rest. Tomorrow I'll be all these things, or at least I'll try my best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very excited for that book. Congratulations on the release today. Thank you. Let's talk about your creative process a little bit. Yeah. Can you describe for us how it starts? Like, does it start with a... 
inkling and then flow through to your hands? Or do you actually sort of work through your hands and it flows back up to the brain? How does It definitely starts in the brain. I'm like, as much as I'm an art person, I'm way more left brain than right brain on like all tests. And I'm like, I have to struggle with my like logic self and my creative self because I tend to actually like focus too hard on making like logical steps forward rather than letting myself be fast and loose about things. It really depends on the kind of project of how my process is because Mm -hmm. I take on client work that starts at different stages of that process on purpose. So sometimes I'll take on like advertising work, for example, where a lot of the ideation has already been handled before it comes to me. And then I'm still ideating in terms of like, what can I bring to the table based on this like concept that they've already come up with and these parameters that they've given me. But it's not as much heavy lifting in terms of ideation. So I can brainstorm, but a lot of it is just me doing sketching. So I'll jump earlier into sketching for a project like that. Whereas if it's a book cover or something where I'm giving a very loose uh, idea of what they want, then it's, you know, like, read the subject and research it, look what else is out there, do a lot of verbal brainstorming, you know, get some sketches down on paper, start with thumbnails. And it's like very it grows from a small place and it starts with idea and then turns into final art. The biggest time commitment, you know, in terms of like how me sitting at a desk making art is the turn the sketch to the final, but the hardest part is zero to sketch. Zero to sketch to figure out what's worth the time commitment of turning the sketch to the final. Because once the sketch is done, all of the heavy lifting is done. The ideating is done. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And then it's just about sitting down and putting in the time to make the final, which I find very meditative. Okay. Like I, if, if I, I always do that kind of work at night or like later in the day when my brain power is like, mm-hmm. and <laughs> because I can sit there and watch like old episodes of The Office or like, you know, listen to podcasts and whatever and just do final art for six to eight hours straight. And it's great. It's like super meditative. I'm sitting at a desk in front of a computer, but whatever. Yeah. But the the stage before that, the like, I don't have an idea to I have a sketch is super painful every time. I'm always like trying to come up with a good idea. And that's the hardest part for me. Do you approach it with like more of a discipline and rigor? Or do you sort of do a rain dance and hope that it comes to you in your subconscious in a dream? Or I'm something? very disciplined. Okay. Uh, mostly because if I think about I totally get blank page syndrome that everybody gets which is you're like oh my god this has to turn into art at some point and you like look down at your blank page and I think that people struggle creatively when they think it's a rain dance and when they don't have a process and so for me I have these very distinct steps that I walk through creatively that allow me to like feel like I've accomplished something and get to move on to the next stage because I think if the only accomplishment is final art is done you just feel like you're in a slog for half of it. Mm-hmm. You need to have these moments that's like, ta-da, like you've leveled up creatively on that project. And then you can feel good about walking away from it for a half a day or an hour or whatever. Well, because you can also feel like you've made the appropriate amount of progress. Yeah, exactly. Because you just have one due date at the end. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if I'm on track or not. Yeah, it also helps you with time management yeah. and like telling clients when they're going to get stuff. So I'll tell them that like, okay, well, I need two weeks to do the sketches because, yes, in terms of me sitting down at my desk and doing sketches, it doesn't take very much time, but I have to sort of sit with this soup of ideas and do the research and all this stuff, and that takes way more time, uh, you know, 
not in a concentrated way, but in a longer timeline way than me sitting down to do the final art. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I need a couple days to do the final art, but I need a couple weeks to do the, the ideation the and soup, the sketch. Yeah. The soup of ideas. I the, like yeah. that. <laughs> That's exactly the picture I needed you to paint. <laughs> it seems like initiative is one of your superpowers. I mean, you, you talked about starting all these websites and, you know, sometimes suffering the consequences of <laughs> too much initiative. Would you agree that initiative is serving you well or disagree? Or? Definitely. Okay. I think like the way that it serves me the most well is if I have a very practical understanding of what is possible from an idea. And I try, I try to make sure that the idea doesn't exceed uh, what I need it to exceed. You know, like not every project that I make needs to be its own separate business, for instance. Right. Okay, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I'll get an idea and I'm like, oh my God, I love this idea. I got to make a thing around this idea. And like, I might get so excited initially that I'm like planning out the next like three years of launching this like business around this <laughs> thing. But I know after all this experience that like, it's really just that spark that is what I'm in it for. It's like a total, it's like a drug you know Uh like i get that and i just feel so powerful and so like consumed by that project and i have to drop everything and work on it but beyond that the maintenance of it is not something that i love and i feel like it would be very difficult for me to like launch a company Mm -hmm. because like once you get past that initial like innovating stage and you're just at like slow growth maintain whatever i would be so disinterested and i would just need to walk away and so with a lot of my projects the initiative is always there but i have to rein it in and like choose which ones i allow myself to work on based on the scale of them and what i feel like i'm capable of at the time Self-awareness is another yes. one yeah. of your superpowers. It yeah. seems like that's serving you really well. I, I mean, mean <laughs> have you ever found yourself in a in a creative drought? And then do you use discipline and rigor to, to get yourself out? Or how creative, do you handle that? So there's a couple reasons why I get creative drought. For one thing, I am the most productive when I have the most on my calendar. So it seems like that as you're like of course you have a lot to do you get a lot done but i need to i it needs to be that i can't walk away because if i walk away like somebody will yeah, the world world the world will, will impl- collapse impl- yeah, yeah exactly okay. so if my schedule is not busy enough that i don't feel a little bit of that pressure i get like nothing done so like that's one of the things that i have found in terms of creative block when i feel like i am feeling really blocked and i can't get anything done and everything feels really hard i have to add more work to my schedule that is really chill you know like stuff that is just sort of catalyst work okay you know small stuff let's make a quick easy thing or i'm gonna go ahead and like update some of this old art because i've never posted it online and maybe i'll just like make it nicer because it's been five years and now it's gross to me you know like (laughs) it's stuff like that don't you ever indulge in just some R&R, some I laziness? Do, I totally do R&R. Okay. But, uh, like, you know, you can max out on R&R, too. Like, oh, yeah. You know, once I, I feel like everybody has their, like, vacation max where they are on, like, day four and like, they start I getting kind of itchy. Yeah. anymore. <laughs> I need yeah. to do something with purpose and meaning. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I think what it comes down to is, like, a lot for a lot of people, work is very draining. And mm-hmm. for me, it's not draining as long as I'm doing the right kind of work. And so I feel like I can get conflicting advice from people where they're like, you need to do you. Let's take a break. Let's go to Indian Springs, la la la. When actually what I really need that I am not aware that I need in the moment is just a day of making stuff. Okay. You know, like, so you have to, you have to think about your work as being like, there's the hard work 
that is not very relaxing, which to me is a lot of the like really heady, you know, like let's solve a big problem stuff. Yeah. And then there's the work that is like spa day work where it's, you're just like hanging out, drinking coffee, watching you, you know, like yeah. Netflix shows and, and being like, day, what a like, nice day. What I mean. You're like, oh, I'm so proud of myself, you <laughs> yeah. know, exactly. And so like I, I do, I do, I have lots of uh, R&R time. You know, I have, I have two little kids so I can't work at night now my daughter stays up too late I don't work on the weekends because those are just for family so I feel like I do get a lot of time of you know hanging out with people that I like and love and doing activities out in the world and so the time that I have during the week is really hopefully devoted to uh, work time except when I need Manny patties and that happens too (laughs) (laughs) I love it you play hooky a little bit You have said, I've read a little about you, you've said that part of your purpose is to help enable other people to be as stoked as you are, to to be as enthusiastic about their work as you are about yours. Why do you feel like that's part of your purpose? Why is that so important to you? Well, I think that I really, it really resonates for me when people feel stuck, like when they feel like they're never going to achieve anything or they feel like they're so far away from feeling successful or whatever. And it's it's usually because whenever we feel guilt, it's because of external stuff, not because of internal stuff. I mean, sometimes it's because you know you did something wrong and you feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times when it comes to our careers, you know, we have all these ideas of what success means or what happiness means. And it's all based on other people's lived experiences, not on our own. And so one of my favorite things to do is help people look realistically at the cards that they've been dealt and figure out how to reshuffle them to make it so that they can make happiness out of what they currently have instead of feeling like they need to flip the table to find that happiness. Ooh, how do you do that? It's just like, you know, I got interviewed like forever and ever ago by my friend Mig Race about like, what's the advice that you would give, one piece of advice you would give? And it was the work that you do while you procrastinate is the work you should be doing for the rest of your life, which has now become like memeishly quoted. <laughs> but um, to me, what it means is that it's not necessarily about your like passion projects and that you should all pursue your passion projects. It's look at the things at your job that you enjoy. Like there has to be a thing there that you enjoy, even if it's just the fact that you're interacting with humans, you know, like what is the thing that you like most about your job? How can you make it so that more of your job is that, you know? And I think that everybody has a way to take a job that feels really mediocre and turn it into a job that feels like a good, helpful growth inducing situation. And most of us just don't have the courage to talk to superiors to tell them these things. When really, if you go to your boss and you say, hey, like, I really love this project that you put me on because of X reasons at this time ago. And I know that you need me to work on this other thing right now, but I'm not getting as much fulfillment out of it. And if there's a way that I can be more of this role on more projects, like it would be game changing for me. And I feel like I would be more productive. And I, I, people just don't know how to have those conversations. And so they feel like the only option is for them to quit their jobs and find something else that's perfect. And nothing is ever perfect. No. no job is ever your perfect job. And even when you get to that perfect job or you have that perfect client, there's always something weird about it. If you think it's going to be perfect, it's always not perfect. And so it's about looking for the good in whatever situation you have in front of you and if there really is no this good... This is how you got over your own perfectionism. Totally, totally. It's how I got over my own perfectionism. It's how I've gotten over, like, having weird traumatic experiences in my life, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. like there's always a silver lining to find. And you just have to find it. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about, you know, the long-distance future. Uh-huh. 
Like, zoom way, way out. Maybe you're even transitioned into non-human energy. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm, I, I enjoy that view of the afterlife as well. Okay. <laughs> How do you hope that your time here has affected the people that are left? Well, I, like... I want to be realistic about how much impact I can have. Like, I think if you can impact the lives of people enough that people remember you for two generations, you know, that's pretty awesome. You know, like, very few people are ever going to be, like, in the history books of just, like, oh, like, generation after generation after generation is going to know you. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't aspire to that. But if, like people that I'm able to affect now tell their kids about me and like the work that I do somehow is able to make their way to that, that would be just super dope. I would be very into that. (laughs) And if it still sparked joy in like two generations, even after maybe it's gone out of fashion and then come back in fashion again, wouldn't that be so nice? Yeah. I mean, honestly too, I think that I'm I'm more concerned about having a real tangible impact with people that are here now than, like, what's going to happen after they're gone. You know, like, because I think it's, like, it would be awesome if that could happen, but I don't want to, you know, bet all my horses on it. (laughs) Because that's leaning back into perfectionism again. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I struggle with, like, um, you know, what sort of egomania and what's (laughs) not. So, but I, I mean... I really feel the impact that I have on people because they tell me, you know, like I get met people message me on Instagram with insanely personal thank yous that are just like, you have no idea how huge of an impact you had on my life. Like, la la la. you know, someone even uh, recently was just like, you announced your kid's book when I was trying to get pregnant. And now we're, you know, and it was a huge struggle. And I felt like it really resonated with me. And now we're about to have our child. And oh. it's like super great. And like this guy had emailed me that his wife was a fan or his girlfriend at the time was a fan of mine. And he was going to be in San Francisco. And he was like, if there's any way that I could somehow involve you in the proposal to her, that would be awesome. And I was like, let's make a poster where you propose to her. And so I totally ended up doing like a free, like, like, will you marry me poster for him that they then hung at the restaurant they like dined at. And then now they're having their they just had their first child. And he wrote me to be like, I can't wait for this like book to be in my kid's life. And that's that's so real, you mm-hmm. know. That it's it, it, very real, very specific. It's very real, very, very specific, human, very human, very now. And so, like, whether or not that extends past these people that I have an immediate now impact on, does it need to? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm okay if yeah. it's lights out when it's lights out. I'm okay with that as long as I know that like I've made an impact on some people. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, you definitely have. (laughs) And I'm sure our listeners are going to feel impacted by this whole conversation. So thank you very much. Why don't you tell us where we can get this children's book, Tomorrow I'll Be Brave? Well, Tomorrow I'll Be Brave should be available everywhere books are sold now. (laughs) Hopefully hopefully it's also at your little local uh, bookstores. But if not, you can grab it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, all sorts of places. And where do you want our listeners to find you on social media? They can find me at my first name, last name, which is Jessica Hish. And Hish is spelled H-I-S-C-H-E on Instagram or Twitter. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. To learn more about Jessica and see images of her work, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. 
And thanks again to Adobe Max and Airstream. We would love to do this again. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the mood, rate and review us. It really helps us connect with new listeners and share these stories. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, a.k.a. 2VDE Media, with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.